Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you today, my friend? Great. I um, I love talking about the scriptures with you, and we're going to talk more about the Talmud again. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. The people really seem to enjoy uh, the references that we had last week, and we learned quite a bit from uh, the parables that you shared with us. And I did notice that somebody had remarked that it is interesting hearing a parable for the first time. Growing up as a Christian, growing up in the church, you hear these parables and you have adults like interpreting them for you, but like hearing a parable for the first mm. time as a grown adult and then wondering if you can hear the message that it was intended from the parable, that was an interesting experience for me. And, uh, you know, somebody had the foresight to point that out uh, this past week. So I'm excited to see what you have to share with us today, brother. Um, oh, yeah. The, the Gospel of Thomas is really great for that because there's a number of overlaps with the Synoptic Gospels, but there are also uh-huh. some some parables, some teachings that are found only in the Gospel of Thomas. And so if you want a fresh kind of like, oh, how would I take this? Just check out the Gospel of Thomas. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. But before we do, just want to remind you guys that uh, we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So we are going to be in, where are we today? We are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 45. So just one section a day, but it is a section that is full of a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of content in here, as you can see. In fact, between the two of us, I don't think we have much more than like four or five passages we want to address in this uh, section. So Derek, would you mind... uh, giving us a little bit of context for these uh, verses we're about to read. Right. So this is a, this is about the time where Joseph is translating the Bible, and we're also in a time of a lot of excitement about the second coming here in the 1830s. And so those two combined to be the prompting for this revelation where we talk mostly about the end times, the second coming, judgment, all these other things. So in this section, we engage with a great deal of eschatology. In an Mm -hmm. earlier episode, I talked about eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things, and protology, the doctrine of the first things or creation. I talked about them both as being primarily about this life. It's a little surprising, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but there's no way we can truly understand exactly what will happen like like we're there. Like we're never gonna get it fully. So the knowledge we are given isn't to satisfy our intellectual curiosity about the next life. For me, it provides knowledge so that we live this life differently. And a good example of this is the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew chapter 25. And this is where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And why are we told all of this? And it's not just to give us some bare information about what's going to happen, you know, some type of like, oh, this is just for your own, to satisfy your curiosity about some details. No, it is given to form and shape us in this life. And I want to clear up some misconceptions. Okay. Some people want to see wokeism as a religion. (laughs) 
You've heard this, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's people on both sides can tend to see wokeism as a religion. Yes, sir. This idea that social justice is now the God that we serve and we've replaced God with this other religion. And to Mm -hmm. that, I want to say with Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 10, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt Mm -hmm. thou serve. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't join this church to serve two masters. Right. Yes, the Lord is the embodiment and personification of wholeness and righteousness and justice. But that doesn't mean that I have any other God other than the one true God who has spoken through prophets in every dispensation. Yes, sir. Wokeism is not my religion. Mm-hmm. Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud are not my heroes. You know, I haven't even read anything by any of them. I have not read hmm. any of their books. People think I'm like smart and well-read. Like, I, just, I literally was thinking about this. You are smart this. and well-read. You I are haven't. literally smart and well-read. I've seen your bookshelf, <laughs> and I've spoken with... I've been your friend for, what, four years now? You are, spoke, you are well-read and educated. I literally haven't read Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, Foucault, all of the heroes of the that particular tradition uh, yeah, not... well, the fact that you even know their names and can pronounce them correctly that already says something <laughs> you're smart you're already smarter than the majority of the people on this earth oh, brother no um well we also need to have a conversation about ableism as well just because i'm smart and i have certain capabilities doesn't mean that i am better and doesn't mean that i have better theology than someone who has less ability or less capability or less access. We'll get into that later, though. Sounds good. So Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, Foucault, those are not my heroes. My heroes are the prophets. For example, Amos, Isaiah, Esther, Jeremiah, Mary, the mother of our Lord, King Benjamin, Joseph Smith, and of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. go into all of the, the implications, but a, all of those had social teachings that are very important, yes, very sir. liberatory, very radical for their historical context. But yes, anyway, sir. these prophets, I'm on their team when it mm-hmm. comes to society, culture, and economics. Yes. Let's talk about my desire for abolition. And I mean, police abolition, prison abolition, abolition of all this stuff. Okay. My desire for abolition flows directly from a white hot passion for the Lord and the Lord's will for all of us to be a Zion people. It's not from some other source. Mm -hmm. And events like the murder of George Floyd and too many others have roused the conscience of this nation, to use Dr. King's phrasing, and our own prophets, President Nelson and President Oaks, have spoken directly and specifically to this issue. Yeah. Anyone who accuses me or you of wokeism hasn't listened, hasn't listened to me speak for five minutes. <laughs> if you listen to me for five minutes, you're going to get like 10 different quotations from the scriptures. You're never going to hear anything by Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah, brother. That is that is right. That is right. And this is one reason why I enjoy talking to you so much about the scriptures. And this is something that's been a strength to me and something that I've noticed people compliment me on as I've spoken is that I don't mm-hmm. quote a lot of, you know, philosophers or great thinkers or civil rights activists. Like, they're in there for sure. But for every one of those that I would quote, 
there's going to be like five to 10 scriptures that I also quote. And mm-hmm. one of the uh, blessings of, uh, you know, getting to do this with you is just to see exactly how much uh, our theology is, uh, or how much our desire for justice is informed by our theology. And, you know, I, I'll speak for myself. I just didn't know yeah. it. I just didn't know exactly how biblical, how scriptural my desire for justice was and just how much I could defer to the scriptures for this stuff. And right. uh, one of the greatest blessings of this is just to kind of see that light come on in other people to realize, oh, my desire is divine. My desire for justice for other people, my desire to abolish racism mm-hmm. and to fight homophobia and misogyny, these are just as scriptural as, you know, any of my other desires for, you know, you know, other things in the church are. And uh, it's been such a fun experience and a rewarding experience to see that light mm-hmm, come on for mm-hmm. people. So I'm really glad you said that. And, you know, this is something that is uh, clearly seen in the black church. I mean, Marx oh, absolutely. Has, has had basically no effect on the black church as a whole right and you right. have this strong passionate thirst for for and hunger for justice that comes out of the community that has nothing to do with all of these uh philosophers that that some people like to hate uh, right. now marx did have some influence on liberation theologians including james cone but liberation theology hasn't been the the dominant position historically in the black churches it's right. been just a uh deep understanding a living understanding of the scriptures themselves that has formed the community right right and i actually want to talk a little bit about that when we uh, get to uh, section nine if, it, if it's cool with you actually i think right, that's the next right, thing okay on the, okay so um what we got here in section 45 anyway is a whole commentary on Jesus Mount of Olives discourse that's found in uh, the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 24 is the one that actually ends up making the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible that uh, I'll reference a little bit later. But uh, that it, that in and of itself isn't particularly remarkable, especially with such a complicated text. But there are a couple of things worth noting about this commentary. And one is that this is the Savior's commentary on his own words. And we're going to uh, get into that a bunch uh, once we explore the text a little bit more thoroughly. But the first thing I wanted to Mm -hmm. uh, talk about was found in verse 9. I'll just go ahead and read this verse real quick. Okay. And even so, I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world to be a light to the world and to be a standard for my people and for the Gentiles to seek to it and to be a messenger before my face and a face to prepare the way before me, close quote. Um, As I read this verse, I just thought to myself, it's really beautiful that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this everlasting covenant, is to be the standard we raise, the invitation we extend for, for people to flock to and to accept. This verse highlights what the role of the church is to be in these latter days, to be a standard of truth that truth seekers might find us and receive Christ. In other words, our living of the gospel truths are going to be an invitation to truth seekers 
to accept Christ. And I just think to myself how often I want people to be able to look at the church and be like, yo, I want some of that. Like, what are y'all doing over there? You know, these people are feeding the hungry. They are liberating the captive. They're seeking to abolish oppressive institutions. What are they doing over there? I want to be a part of what they doing. You know, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church I want to create within our community. It's just the kind that clearly rate, like this is what I, this is what I see Derek, or at least this Mm -hmm. is what has been on my mind a lot recently. I see, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm saying this unironically now. Um, I see a lot of young people out here. And by that, of course, I mean people significantly younger than me. Um, but, um, I see them on these front lines, you know, do, they're, they're marching, they're organizing, they are seeking to create a better world. But I've also noticed that a lot of them want nothing to do with the church. And uh, in exploring that and the reasons for that, you know, I, I've, I've done a little bit of research on the matter. But uh, one conclusion that I've noticed in, the, in this research, something that I've already expected, is that A lot of these people don't want anything to do with the church because it doesn't speak to their needs and to their hungers for justice, which blows me away considering what we do on this show and considering just how entwined or just how how much justice is, you know, not just a part of what Jesus has done, but it's like Mm -hmm. an integral part of it. You know, it's. It's baked in to the message of Christ. It is baked into his mission. Right. Like his message is all about justice, I feel like. So the fact that young people don't want anything to do with the church because the church can't speak to the needs they have to pursue justice should be an incredible mm-hmm. indictment of what we have become as Christians and what we have become, you know, I'll speak to us in our particular context as Latter-day Saints. What is the standard that we are raising that young people may not want to be part of this church or that people in general can't see themselves being a part of it because of our stances or what we don't do when it comes to social justice. When we cannot speak to, you know, issues of racism, when we can't speak to issues of misogyny, of, of ableism, of, uh, you know, of, 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 uh, homophobia, of queer phobia in general, like, when these marginalized groups do not want to be a part of us because the Jesus Christ that we preach doesn't seem to be relevant to them, I think it is at that point where we have to consider what exactly is the standard that we are raising. Mm-hmm. Because the standard that we raise should be an invitation that truth seekers might find us and receive us and receive Christ more specifically. Mm-hmm. But if people that are embracing the truth that there is nothing wrong with who they are, that there is nothing wrong with their immutable identities, and they come to see us as people who, or, you know, as a church that doesn't affirm that truth, then they are going to reject our invitation. So it was upon reading this verse that I was just like, what kind of standard are we raising? What kind of standard should we be raising that Gentiles and, you know, the definition, you know, we're going to see the mm-hmm. word heathens used in these uh, verses, but, you know, heathens just means people that aren't Christians or Jews in this context, I believe. So, like, what kind of standard are we raising that all these people can be able to flock 
to the everlasting covenant, can flock to the restored gospel? That's the question I was considering as I read this particular verse, just considering what the role of the church is. Do you got any immediate thoughts about that, brother? Yeah, my immediate thoughts is that's exactly what I did. As a convert, I saw something beautiful and profound in this church. Yes, And I'm like, yes. I want some of that. Yes. I wanted to be part of it. And so what you were, by God's grace, what you were dreaming of actually happened with me. I wish it would happen with more because we have a deep and rich and beautiful theological tradition that gets very, very narrowed culturally. Yeah, I think yeah. most people, if you ask them what Mormonism it's about, it's about getting a ticket so that you can be with your family in in an eternal Disneyland together. Like, that's <laughs> really all it's about. That's yeah. how they talk about covenants and ordinances. That's how they talk about the scriptures. It's all about getting a ticket to Disneyland with your family. And that is, now that's a piece of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we have a such deep, more, it's, the tradition is deeper and richer and broader and more inclusive and more comprehensive about everything uh, uh, touching all truths and all principles and all values that to just narrow it really gives you a very distorted understanding of the gospel and unfortunately given the format of general conference (laughs) we don't get the depth and richness and complexity of our own tradition even and so if all you're doing is listening to general conference and that's what your Mormonism, oh, we're not supposed to say Mormonism, if, if that's what your <laughs> understanding of the restored gospel is about, there's a lot that you're missing, Yeah. right? They can't spoon feed everything to us. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I had to uh, say about verse nine. I don't think I'm going to have anything to say for a little bit. So I okay. do want to move on to your thoughts on uh, uh, 16 through 17. Yeah. So let me just read verses 16 and 17. Yes, sir. It says, and here Jesus is speaking. As ye have asked of me concerning the signs of my coming in the day when I shall come in my glory in the clouds of heaven to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. Hmm. For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage, I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come and also the restoration of the scattered Israel. And what I want to focus on is this purpose here to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. And that is the structure for the frame in which we're going to understand the second coming. All right. And, in, and of course, one of the major promises to in the scriptures is the restoration of Israel. And I want to zero, zero in on that concept about these promises. The traditions that we inherit become a storehouse or library of resources that form and shape our understanding, our expression, the way we navigate and negotiate the world. So I want to introduce an important theologian, George Lindbeck. Uh, He's now dead, but he for many years was at Yale. And he was one of the leaders in what is called post-liberal theology. Have you heard of George Lindbeck? Yes, I have. Okay. So, in order to understand post-liberal theology, we need to know what liberal theology was. Liberal mm-hmm. theology, and by liberal, I don't mean what conservatives, like, oh, they just think everyone's liberal. This is actually a specific movement rooted in a specific historical period of time, really modernism. Uh, and anyway, so in order to understand 
liberal theology, we need to realize that it was born in the Enlightenment, a time of science and religion and discovery, a focus on getting back to the objective truths, throwing off artificial authorities and traditions, and just being free to pursue truth as individuals. Okay. And the Enlightenment itself was a reaction to the more traditional pre-scientific formulations of religion that came earlier. These pre-modern theologies, Lindbeck calls cognitive propositional theology. It's all about simple historical and philosophical truth claims. It's you mentally Mm -hmm. assent to certain propositions, and that's really what theology is about. And that's what classical theology and all of Christian denominations were uh, really up until the Enlightenment. Okay. And he, he calls historic liberal theology experiential expressive theology. It's about subjective feelings of connection in a world of objective reason and inquiry. And Schleiermacher is a good example of this, who in a time of deism and atheism said, hey, wait a minute, we can still have our science, and then our religion is about how we uh, have a subjective feeling of absolute dependence and connection with God, and that's really ultimately what theology is about. All right. And then uh, for for Lindbeck, his post-liberal theology is cultural linguistic theology. So just to review, uh, what? What does that mean? Oh, cultural linguistic theology is a. It, it, I'm going to explain this. It's, okay, my uh, bad. My bad. It, 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 it's it's kind of a it's kind of a big thing. It's a different way of of looking at at theology. But I'm just going to review. First, we had the cognitive propositional theology, then liberal theology is experiential expressive, and then post-liberal is cultural linguistic. And here's where the, let me explain this by just quoting from Lindbeck. Here's what he says. All right. To become religious, no less than to become culturally or linguistically competent, is to interiorize a set of skills by practice and training. One learns how to feel, act, and think in conformity with a religious tradition that is, in its inner structure, far richer and more subtle than can be explicitly articulated. The primary knowledge is not about the religion, nor that the religion that nor that the religion teaches such and such, but rather how to be religious in such and such ways. It is necessary to have the means for expressing an experience in order to have it. And the richer our expressive or linguistic system, the more subtle, varied, and differentiated can be our experience. To become religious involves becoming skilled in the language, the symbol system of a given religion. To become Christian involves learning the story of Israel and of Jesus well enough to interpret and experience oneself and one's world in its terms. Close Mm -hmm. quote. I also want to say that Lindbeck was really formed by um, the ecumenical movement, having dialogue with other religions. How do we respectively engage that you've got these completely other systems that are are there? But anyway, Lindbeck here is pushing it back against historic liberal theology, which questions authority and questions tradition. For Lindbeck, religions are like languages. 
We speak, we speak English not because it's the one true language, but because it is the language of our culture and the only means many of us have for processing and, experience, and expressing our experiences. Right. Other religions are like other languages. Lindbeck here draws upon Wittgenstein's concept of language games. So for the Enlightenment, the goal was correspondence, that religious truths would correspond to the way the world actually was, scientifically and historically. But for Lindbeck, the goal is coherence. We are playing a self-consistent language game. What does truth look like in this kind of language game? Here's, here's what it looks like. We're going to hear more from Lindbeck. He says, right. utterances are intrasystematically true, and that means true within a system, when they cohere with the total relevant context, which in the case of a religion when viewed in cultural linguistic terms, is not only other utterances, but also the correlative forms of life. Thus, for a Christian, God is three in one, or Christ is Lord, are true only as parts of a total pattern of speaking, thinking, feeling, and acting. They are false when their use in any given instance is inconsistent with what the pattern as a whole affirms of God's being and will. The Crusaders' battle cry, Christus est Dominus, for example, is false, and that means Christ is Lord, is false when used to authorize cleaving the skull of the infidel, close quote. So he's not going back to a pre-modern understand of text and tradition where it's infallible, inerrant, undivorced uh, really from a, a sense of historical contingency. He says, yeah, we've learned all this stuff from liberal theology, but now what do we do? What do, we, do? we can go back and reclaim some of the tradition and, and text and authority of, the, uh, of what we've inherited and this is how we're going to, to play with it. I'm only vaguely familiar with Lindbeck, and I never actually had a working definition of post-liberal, post-liberal theology. Um, so, like, this is this is still a bit Greek to me, but you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just I'm just sitting here learning for the time being. I've been focusing mostly on this whole linguistic piece about how you know mm-hmm. the different languages like different religions are different l- languages and give us different opportunities or different uh, ways to correspond with certain truths so that made a lot of sense to me and that gave me something to think about and chew on for a little bit but uh yeah i'm going to have to i'm going to need a minute with this other stuff i i'm going to okay. have to just sit with it and i think that's actually something you get when you look at different languages like my mm-hmm. the the other world religion that i've done the most exploration in is judaism and yeah. i realize oh you've got sort of this principle in our religion and this principle in their religion and this is how they say it and this is how what stories they use to tell that uh, mm-hmm. principle and so there's an element of translating not like yeah literally translating uh but sort of there's a way of saying that in Judaism. There's a way of saying that in Islam. There's a way of, yeah. of saying that. And I think that's kind of what he's hitting upon here. And yeah. Lindbeck is restoring a respectable place for tradition and text that had been challenged by the Enlightenment. Like I said, the Enlightenment was like, we're just going to throw off external authority. We're going to have an individual journey of, of truth and you go wherever the evidence leads and, and so on. Mm. And... I think there's some things that we can learn from both liberalism and post-liberalism. Although I'm not a post-liberal myself. 
I just want to say that. I think there's things <laughs> we can learn. As a theologian, I try to, I try to, and this is so hard, I try to both push the tradition and be pushed by the tr- tradition. Dude. It needs to, yeah. <laughs> like, I, th- I was thinking about that today, just in preparation for, you know, having this conversation. Um, and you've articulated it so beautifully mm-hmm. with that little maxim push the tradition and be pushed by the tradition like it is such a fine or at least to me it feels like such a fine line to walk because you see the value and what it is that you have but you also see the need for things to be explored in a way that we haven't really explored them so that either it can be a more enriching experience for us or that it can be a more enriching and more fulfilling and life-giving experience for other people. I mean, again, I could be wrong about saying it's such a fine line, mm-hmm. but it's just something mm-hmm. that I wrestle with on a fairly regular basis, the tension between honoring the tradition and letting myself be pushed by it, but also of wanting to push the tradition to right. you know, be more expansive or to greater heights, whatever, whatever you want to say about that. And to me, that's the core of what it means to be faithful. I think we on the margins probably get prompted to to challenge the tradition all the time and push back and, and want yeah. it to be better. Yeah. But we also have to make space for saying, look, there's there's a richness here that I should allow to form me as well. Yeah. And that I should allow to be uh, checks and balances. And, and there's, there's things that we can learn, not just things yeah. that we can teach. And I think that's the best part of being in a living tradition that's led by a prophet is mm-hmm. we get this interplay of pushing the tradition and being willing to to be pushed by it yeah it's part of you know it's part of the experience of being a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day mm-hmm. saints and i don't feel like enough people either acknowledge that or want to acknowledge that but like that tension it is part of our faith tradition and i wish we would embrace that a little bit more yeah, and I want to say something a little bit more about Lindbeck's cultural linguistic model for understanding okay. what religion is. And it has to do, again, with ableism, because what about some of our friends with cognitive disabilities, sort of intellectual disabilities that make linguistic processing different or difficult for them? What does that mean? Like, can they not do theology as well? And I don't want to. I don't really want to go there. I think I just don't want to say that people who who can't process. And there's this cultural piece too. Like our neuro our neurodivergent friends may process social and cultural uh, things differently. And I don't want to say that. Oh, it's all about playing these language games and being part of this. Uh, you need skills, and you need the skills of flowing in the tradition this particular way in order to do theology. I just don't want to give a superiority to people like me who have certain access, certain abilities, certain uh, ways of very easily fitting in. I, ironically, I fit in very well in terms of of intellectual discourse. And I, mm. I realize that not everyone does for whatever reason. And I just can't say that my theology is better than than theirs because I have this access. I just want to name that. I don't have a solution to that, (laughs) but I just wanted to name that. Now, I noticed you had some things that you wanted to say as well and in some other sections. Yeah, I did. Uh, Let me go ahead and move on to, uh, I want to focus on verses 26 through 
29. Um, we are getting into the signs of the times at this point, and uh, I'm going to just go ahead and read it. Again, this is 45 verses 26 through 29. And in that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them, and they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. And the love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. And when the times of the Gentiles is come in, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. But they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. Close quote. So the heart or love is referenced three times in these four verses, and it's all about these things coming up short or failing in some way. And also in each of these cases, not coincidental, I think, that failure of the heart is tied to the sins of men, tied to our iniquities. Like, let me, let me, let me, let me run this back again. Whole earth shall be in commotion and men's hearts shall fail them. The love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. Though, interestingly enough, the Joseph Smith Matthew translation of Matthew 24 reads a bit differently, making the connection more direct. Quote, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. See, like, that ties the two together. There's yeah. like, if, yeah. like, love shall wax cold because iniquity shall abound. And then finally, verse 29, they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. Mm-hmm. Like, Bro, there, mm, there, there's a lot I want to say about each one of these that isn't wholly formulated, but I would like, I, I like to try. And uh, let me just start with 27. It's the one in the middle, uh, simply because that was the one that first hit me and the one that I can probably speak most directly to. So I'm going to try to speak to this one. So 27, that's the one that says the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. That sounds like battle fatigue to me. That sounds like racial battle fatigue, queer battle fatigue. Like mm. it, it could just as easily be any other marginalized group, but that's going to be the perspective I speak from is the one of racial battle fatigue. So I talked to the sister missionaries this past week about uh, creating an individual mission plan, and they gave me uh, three different questions to consider. I, I thought the first two were pretty simple. You know, simple questions like, how can I strengthen my personal conversion? And the other one was, how can I serve others? The third question got me a little bit, though, because it's something I, I've i been struggling with, or at least have known that I struggle with since I was a missionary in training. And that question was, how can I share the light of Christ with others? Um, and my memory flashed back to this uh, moment when I was in the missionary training center where my instructor pulled me aside to point out that she knew I had a testimony and she knew I was uh, there for good reasons. But she also pointed out that I had a bit of a dark cloud on me that was preventing the light of Christ from shining through the way that it potentially could have been. And I couldn't really be offended. I knew she was kind of right. I did have a bit of a dark cloud about me back then. I still have that black cloud about me now, you know, just the truth is back then I took myself and You know, I still do take myself a little too seriously sometimes when it comes to things, when it comes to the gospel. And I don't know exactly why I did that back then. But, you know, right now that I I know that sometimes the apathy or the outright hostility that I see in my fellow saints toward the plight of the marginalized can make me very cold to them. 
to the point where I don't think the gospel is for them. Uh, them meaning people who subscribe or are complicit right. in oppressive institutions. And then I feel like my ministering efforts might be better placed elsewhere. Like I take my I take my reading and my uh, view of the gospel very seriously when it comes to marginalized mm-hmm. people, and uh, I let that weigh on me sometimes. Um, you know, I've uh, I've semi joked that if I ever get excommunicated, that I will rejoice in not being allowed to pay tithing, not being allowed to have a mm. calling, not being allowed to do any ministering or anything else Uh-oh. among people that, Uh-oh. you know, take exception to my work of affirming the oppressed. Because, but, you know, I do see the danger in that. Don't, like, don't worry too much about that, Derek. I do see the danger in that attitude. Um, this Uh-oh. is just all to say that uh, I, I understand that the love of men shall wax cold. Like there's like, I, I get it uh, for people that are trying to do this work. This isn't really something that you can, I mean, this is certainly something that you can fight the effects of, but mm-hmm. like just the more I experienced the death of black people, like we didn't even have 24 hours to quote unquote rejoice for the George Floyd verdict uh, before another black person was killed. Um, you know, you just become kind of numb to this stuff and you become kind of despondent that and you just kind of accept that people are going to keep dying and you're going to just have to keep mm-hmm. dealing with it. And as a defense mechanism, almost, you just kind of shut that part of yourself off like your love really does wax cold because that iniquity just keeps happening. Um so I did want to bring that out. That was uh, that was my particular reading of what it means that the love of men shall wax cold. This also had a, a familiar ring back to what was written in Moroni when Moroni when a Mormon told his son that people shall lose their love. Um, this is what I see happening. Just it becomes harder and harder to love a people who are either complicit in or hostile to. Um, or sorry, that are either complicit in white supremacy or active participants in it, but you still got to go to church with these people. You still got to take their temple recommends and hand them back and say, Brother Jones, welcome to the temple. Um, it's, it's hard, man. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to, uh, to acknowledge and it's a hard thing to uh, deal with. But anyway, I'm rambling now. Let me move on to this other part of the verse. Well, I wanted, I wanted to, to say about. something real quick about. Oh yeah, go ahead. The some of the implications of Lindbeck's approach, focusing on sort of this cultural linguistic storehouse for for some of the other models, conversion is really about accepting objective propositions. Like, oh, you need to accept this particular creedal statement or subscribe to this particular confession and that's what it means to convert but for Lindbeck this idea that religions are like languages it's about becoming fluent in the language and I think that is something that we need to think about when we do our missionary work is helping and this is something that I have not fully completed and no one ever will but there's a lot more that I need to learn about how to say things in a Latter-day Saint way. Like what is our reservoir of rich traditions and stories and narratives and texts that Mm -hmm. I'm learning and I'm learning to become proficient in. And I think a lot of our missionary work has focused on the first, like oh, getting people to assent to certain beliefs, but it's all about assimilation into the culture and the, the literary and linguistic traditions of the culture. 
Mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, let me let me move on to uh, verse twenty nine here. This is Christ saying that they receive it not. This stood out to me because this is one of the greatest obstacles in missionary work to me. So let me let me run this back again. They, this is verse 29, meaning the Gentiles or anyone who hasn't received the gospel yet, receive it not. For they perceive not the light and they turn their hearts from me. And then the question I got to ask is why, they, why don't they perceive the light? Why do they turn their hearts? And I, I've alluded to this already, but it says because of the precepts of men. It may not matter for the purposes of this verse and what the Savior has to say. It may not matter what men are doing this. But in the moment I read this, I thought of our men. I thought of our leaders, our members, any of us that veil unholy precepts like homophobia, like racism, like ableism, like misogyny in messages of Christ, in a message of Christ. Sure, it could be other Gentiles. It could be other people that this scripture alludes to. But it could just as easily be, if not more so, be us. Um, I was thinking of something that, uh, you know, I, I've already talked about this, but this, I, I feel like because of what the church can or cannot offer to people who are actually doing the work of justice, we lose out a lot on people who would otherwise hear our precepts, but can't hear them because they don't see our action. Um, I was reminded right. of, of uh, something that Dr. Shannon Polk once said. Uh, she said that the poor won't be able to hear the message of Jesus Christ over the growling of their stomachs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similarly, I believe that the LGBTQ community that will struggle to hear the message of a compassionate Christ over homophobia in his name. I believe the message of a Christ that dissolves hierarchical distinctions between groups may not reach women who are consistently objectified, victim blamed and left out of conversations that affect them. I believe that, uh, the message of a Christ who, uh, you know, told the parable of the good Samaritan, a Christ who, you know, dealt with, and healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, I believe that that Christ's message will not be heard to people who are consistently segregated from communities or from Christian communities based on the color of their skin. As uh, I don't remember who said it, if it was Baldwin or Malcolm X, but said the most segregated hour in America is high noon on a Sunday. I thought that uh, was Dr. King. Was it Dr. King? I thought so. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Well, Yeah, it don't matter, but... Uh, The point is, I look at this verse, and the first guilty party that I thought of was the very people who are supposed to be the standard bearers. Uh, We don't perceive the light because we don't necessarily radiate it, and people will turn their hearts from it because the Jesus that we preach does not preach the justice that the world needs most right now. So, like, this is... This is what I read. When I hear that they receive it not because they perceive not the light... I see that people perceive not the light because we are not necessarily giving them the light or giving them the pieces of Jesus that they need. The Jesus that we worship, the Jesus of the Bible is actually a Jesus of justice, but they right. might, but that is filtered through our understanding that is filtered through our biases, through our culture and through our experiences to the point where the light is not perceptible. And so people might turn their hearts from Christ because of our precepts. Mm. That's what I read mm. when I heard this Yeah, verse. you know, that, that gets, what's, what we've got here is 
language of ability and disability here again because it's about perception. It's about can they perceive mm-hmm. the light or in the case of the poor, can they hear the message about Jesus over the growling of their stomachs? Mm-hmm. And that I find really interesting because that's something we can learn from the disability community about how, yes, there's there's physical, physical and cognitive limitations, but then those limitations get turned into a disability by the way our society is constructed, right? So people are disabled, right? That as, think of it like as a transitive verb, that they are uh-huh. disabled by the society that uses those limitations as a way of preventing access. And so here, the we can literally say that the people who receive it are disabled by other people, the precepts of men, mm. or in the case of the poor, mm. the hungry, they are disabled by a society that does not allow them to access and hear yeah. the language because of their poverty. Yeah. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Like, uh, it didn't occur to me to note that we are, quote unquote, disabling people with how we might be filtering mm-hmm. uh, what we receive from Christ or what we receive in general. So I, I really like that, uh, that, that little translation you did there. So this is, I think the last thing I want to just point out here, I don't have a lot to say about this either, but this is uh, verses 34 and 35. And the primary reason I wanted to point out these verses is because there's not really anything like this that appears in uh you know, this discourse in the Gospels. Let me just go ahead and read these verses. And now when I, the Lord, had spoken these words unto my disciples, he just spoke about what the, you know, the last days and what the signs of the last days were going to be. Then he says, they were troubled. And this is verse 35. And I said unto them, be not troubled, for when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. So again, nothing like these verses are included in the Gospels. It's a lot of uh, uh, doom and gloom, and then we get this inspired commentary that the Lord hits us with. Um, with each, with with the passing of each of these signs, disciples of Jesus Christ are to recognize that we are steadily approaching the millennial "quote unquote" day of righteousness spoken of in verse 12 and the promised quote-unquote day of redemption spoken of in verse 17 as surely as summer follows the budding of spring leaves on fig trees in jerusalem like uh that's the whole that's the whole hope we're supposed to be feeling right even at this time of a lot of doom and gloom the lord has already shown that he's good for such a promise because he did it with the performance of the atonement and the resurrection we discussed this on easter in our conversation we we celebrated the triumph of christ over a, over a humiliating death we mm-hmm. we were reminded that christ snatched light from darkness hope from despair beauty from ugliness liberty from captivity etc christ is good for this promise and according to Christ this is why we should not be troubled because at the end of the day we're going to be if as disciples of Christ we are going to be okay that doesn't mean that this isn't going to be a difficult time like i don't think Christ is saying that at all like when i first read this verse Christ saying be not troubled i'm just like uh Jesus did you hear what you just said <laughs> yeah did, did you hear what's i mean that, that all sounds pretty bad, but, uh, you know, Jesus, considering 
how close this was to his own death and what he knew was to come, you know, I kind of, I kind of get it. Jesus was basically saying it's going to be okay in the end and that we shouldn't worry too much about what is to come. So I do want to hear that message while also validating that this time that should precede that, you know, the day of the Lord, that's still going to be rough. But as disciples of Christ, we can take hope in the fact that, you know, through the atonement and through uh, Christ's already had victories over death and over captivity, his -hmm. disciples need not worry about what is ultimately going to happen to them. We've seen several allusions made to uh, Enoch already, the city of Enoch, the Zion people. Like we, we know how that is supposed to be and what the millennium is going to look like. All is going to be made right in the end. And I hate kind of saying that because I don't want to invalidate the hardship that is coming. But uh, just again, to repeat myself for a final time, with Christ on our side or as his disciples, we should not be troubled concerning the ultimate outcome of our, of our lives. Right. And I think this would have been so life-giving to the original audience in 1831. This is a, uh, a struggling church dealing with a lot of persecution and facing yeah. a lot of unknowns. I think yeah. this speaks hope and joy into the heart of that mess. And that's the overarching conclusion that we should draw from section 45 is hope and the ability to latch on to joy. I think I want to connect that with what I'm a, I'm going to say on verses 56 through 59. Yeah, let's go. And here's what it says. And at that day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled, which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived. Verily, I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. And the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. For the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. I want to focus on what the uh, wise virgins did. It says, They that are wise have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. It's about what the wise have latched on to. And I want to go and talk about the parable of the ten. I, I call them bridesmaids because that makes a lot of more sense to people than virgins. Okay. Let's talk about the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew chapter 25. So in this parable, ten bridesmaids are waiting for the groom who represents Jesus. Five of these are wise and they bring extra oil for their lamps and five are foolish and they don't take advantage of that opportunity to get more oil. Hmm. These, the five virgins who make the most of their resources are like the servant who uses his talents to make more in the parable of the talents in this same chapter in Matthew or it's like the servant from last week in our rabbinical text who takes weak wheat and flax and makes cloth and bread while his master is gone. So all of these, both wise and foolish, on judgment day are judged based on whether or not they took hold of the blessing, the extra oil, when they had the chance. And the foolish ones are condemned for not grabbing the joy when it was available. 
So from this text, I'm deriving the principle that we will be judged for refusing the joys and pleasures of this life. Now, this is counterintuitive. Like a lot of people think, oh, you're going to be judged for all those, all that bad stuff you did. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to be judged for the goodness of creation that we refuse. And this goes back to my note earlier that eschatology is primarily about this life. So this parable is telling us about how we should live in this life. Now, so I am going to quote from the Jerusalem Talmud. There are two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. If people talk about the Talmud, they're almost always talking about the Babylonian Talmud. So here I'm, I'm quoting from the Jerusalem Talmud, Kedushin 4.12, and here's what it says. Rabbi Chizkiah, which is Hezekiah, Rabbi Chizkiah said in the name of the Rav, humans will one day have to give an account for everything they saw that was delightful to their eyes that they did not partake. I'm going to say that again because it's so beautiful. Humans will one day have to give an account for everything they saw that was delightful to their eyes that they did not partake. Hmm. And uh, the text goes on. Interestingly, Rabbi Lazar was very strict about this, and he would save a little money so that he could eat every item once a year so as to fulfill this technicality. Isn't that an interesting (laughs) way of of taking this text? Quite. Wow. Okay. So, and now I haven't done that. And this reminds me so much of what we learn in 2 Nephi 2.25, that Adam and Eve fell, that people might be, and that people are, that they might have joy. That's our whole purpose in life. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say um, that the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's the gendered language of the text itself. Mm -hmm. But the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this reminds me of the one of the main teachings of Galatians 5. And this is why it's so important not to just look at verses, but to look at the overarching context. Like, what is this verse doing in this paragraph? What is this paragraph doing in this chapter? What is this chapter doing in the arc of the whole argument of the letter to the Galatians? So here is one of the main teachings of Galatians 5, that for freedom Christ has set us free. And if we, Paul teaches that if we wrongly restrict ourselves from something, we will be judged for it. And this is in the context of Gentiles being pressured not to be Gentiles, being pressured to adopt circumcision and to restrict themselves from non-kosher foods. And Paul condemns this harshly. Paul wasn't nice. He wasn't nice to the opponents in Galatia, but he also wasn't even nice to the to the to the Gentiles themselves. He called the Galatians names. He was name calling. He called them "oh foolish Galatians" in hmm. Galatians three one. Um, and I'm saying this because some people say, "Oh, you're name calling." I'm like, "Yeah, I am." Jesus did it. Paul did it. Isaiah did it. <laughs> Everyone did it. Like there are some things where the justice demands the strongest language you can to hold people accountable. I'm right. digressing on this. You can tell something happened to me on the internet this week, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes, sir. Anyway, so Paul teaches in chapter 5 that if we refuse to grab on to the joy that our Christian freedom gives us, we have been alienated from Christ. We have fallen away from grace. Paul is pronouncing curses on people who refuse to latch on to what is delightful to their eyes. 
And just like the Rav declared, we will one day have to give an account for everything that we saw that was delightful to our eyes that we did not partake of. We will one day be judged for depriving ourselves of the extra oil and the right to join the joyful wedding procession with the groom. Mm -hmm. Trying to share the oil would not have left enough oil for any of the torches, and that would have ruined the wedding festivities. We must latch on to the joy that is within our reach. We must, fill, we must fill the measure of our creation. Mm. This has tremendous relevance for LGBT people. We must latch on to every joy that we have a right to have. It's a commandment. If mm -hmm. on Judgment Day you realize that you should have married the person you love and you didn't, it will be too late. If on Judgment Day you realize that you should have lived as the gender you know yourself to be and you didn't, it will be too late. Mm. At midnight comes the cry, the bridegroom is here. All who wrongly deprive themselves will be mad at themselves for being so foolish. Mm. The fact that Paul's declaration of freedom in Galatians 5 is so shocking, so expansive, and has such far-reaching implications is proven by the fact that Paul feels the need to clarify that we should not use this freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. This is Galatians 5.13. So ironically, some people will use this verse to to say, well, this isn't what Paul was doing, but Paul is anticipating the effect on the Galatians like this is a is a big blast. Like it has far-reaching implications, and he knows that. But now this, this text about not indulging the flesh doesn't at all make a difference between same-gender love and other-gender love. Both can be done in a way that is selfish and abusive, and both can be done in a way that is holy and loving. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit here in this chapter. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, as it says in um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Joy is one of these fruits. We should reach out and grab it before it is too late. And all of these yes, fruits sir. of the Spirit are absolutely found in uh, queer relationships and queer lives, the same as in straight lives and straight relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think this, uh, this will be a little bit shocking to some of our friends in the Latter-day Saint world to, say, to think that on Judgment Day we, we will be judged for not uh, partaking of pleasures. But in a way, this is a lesson we learn in the temple with Adam and Eve, right? And I think that is that that deals with the complexity of life. Of what are you going to to do? Hmm. Yeah, a lot of bars in there, Derek. You you spoke a whole word, man, and uh, I, I loved it. It mm -hmm. <laughs> so much of that. Like when when you when you said that little piece about um, you know on judgment day, realizing that you should have married the person that you love and didn't, it'll be too late. Mm -hmm. You know, just there is, there, there's just so much going on here with regard to how we could be living in our, living our lives. Now, obviously this, there's applications to, you know, all aspects, but uh, I, I do want to make sure that people catch that because that was worth saying several times. And, yeah. uh, this is something 
that I need people to understand about the work that we are engaged in. Mm-hmm. It is all about making sure that people feel like they're in a space or can be able to partake right. of these blessings. And, um, you know, not just experiencing these blessings, but providing other people the opportunity and giving them the, uh, not necessarily the permission, but giving them the support to engage in those blessings. There will come a time when it's too late for us to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For people in positions of privilege, I hear people all the time say things like, you know, if I was alive during the civil rights era, I would have been supportive of Dr. Martin Luther King or things like, you know, hmm. I would have, I wouldn't have been okay with slavery, but you know, we look at their actions at this point and then you just see like, usually a lot of those people are straight up silent. They're complicit, right? You know, right. nothing is being done. And by the time all of this is said and done, by the time we have realized if we ever get to do that in our lifetime, the full humanity of black people, by the time we honor the full humanity of LGBTQ folks, at least uh, institutionally speaking in the church, you know, we're going to have to render an accounting for what we did mm-hmm. to reach that mm-hmm. end as potential allies or as people who benefit from straight supremacy. So like, there are so many other ways we can apply this, but I really like that you have acknowledged that people who have the capacity to experience joy and don't do it, especially if you're on the margins, like that opportunity may not come again. So thanks for Thanks for bringing that up. I, I just yeah. wanted to quote that like a, a couple more bajillion times just to make sure that people yeah. heard it. I mean, it's it's tough because like people are going to accuse me of being too gay or too insistent on my dignity or too whatever. But I'm not worried about that. I'm actually worried. I, I, I am afraid that I'm going to get there on Judgment Day and Jesus is going to tell me, Derek, you weren't gay enough. Like you knew better and you weren't gay enough. You don't have an excuse, Jesus. I don't have an excuse. I know it, I should be gayer. <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand there without excuse. And you I think this, the whole point of the parable, most parables have just one main point. And the point of this parable about the, the 10 virgins is about, you know, not doing what you should and it, it being too late because by the time midnight comes and the and the shout is made that the bridegroom is here, it's too late to go and buy oils. Mm-hmm. They needed to get on that way before. And yes, after, um, at some point when our church is fully pro LGBT inclusive, then all these people are going to come and they're going to want to buy oil. I'm like, yeah, it's too late. Yeah, you can get on board now, but where were you this whole time? Mm-hmm. It's gonna be mm-hmm. it's gonna be too late for them to actually join in the celebration. Yes, sir. Then cometh the bridegroom. Yeah. Well, that's all I have to say because if I keep talking, I'll be talking for another hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's all yeah. good, brother. 
Let's go ahead and wrap up there then. Um, before we go ahead and wrap up, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at btblds. You can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And you can also find us uh, on Facebook. On Facebook, yes. Um, also, thanks to our new collaborators that have joined us this week. Uh, really look forward to y'all's participation in the Facebook group if you haven't already joined. Um, if you haven't received the link to join, just go ahead and email us or shoot us a DM on Facebook or Instagram. We'll make sure that you guys get in. Um, also, thank you to uh, David Doyle, who's been handling our transcripts, as well as Tamara Kemsley, who's been doing the audio for the podcast. Thank you guys very much for all that y'all do for us. and. You know, the access that y'all help people have as a result of y'all's work. Y'all are rock stars. Thank you guys again for listening till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.